Good morning. What an eye-opening video skit that was, and I think that's a great transition into today's scripture reading, where we find or we read about the story of betrayal. Last week, if you were here, we, we uh, heard about the Jesus washing of the disciples' feet. And today, this morning, we are still in that setting, still in the upper room, still at the Lord's table. But now God addresses them and saying, yeah, you may receive me, but believe it or not, in this room, we still have a person that does not. In fact, a person that will betray me. And so today we find ourselves in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. And I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you could just follow along on the screen. I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table, and that's speaking of John. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread, I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Jesus had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasure, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. Church, this is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord our God, we bless and thank you for the gift of your word. Grant your servant, Pastor Ken, both the humility and the boldness necessary to preach it. Prepare our hearts, God, Prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened and changed by it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ed. I do have a couple of questions this morning uh, that I want to ask as we uh, do the follow-up from last week. Last Sunday, we're in a short series of messages called 24 Critical Hours. And last Sunday, we looked at this incredible story from John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet by the Lord Jesus. And I think what really uh, touched my life as I prepared last week was the, the fact that, that Jesus taught us that the heart of God looks like a servant. And that just has been coming back to my heart over and over again, that the heart of God looks like a servant, that this is the nature 
of God, high and exalted and lifted up indeed, but also a servant. This morning, uh, we push a little bit uh, further ahead to a passage that's important, but certainly not one that you would want to focus on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, let me assure you. I couldn't help but feel a deep sadness as I read and reread and reread this passage in the past few days. And I think you'll feel that sadness as well. Sorry to put that on you. Uh, but in the end, we discovered again what an amazing Savior we have. So I invite you uh, to take your written word or your electronic uh, word and turn to John 13, 18 to 13, and uh, we'll stick pretty close to this passage. And as you've already noted, this is a passage about Judas. A lady said, uh, last summer I taught a vacation Bible school class on Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And after the lesson, I went over the review questions and asked, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? And without hesitating, my seven-year-old son, Kenny, replied, I know, it was Judas the scariest. <laughs> and you, you can kind of, you can get that, the way that little boy would hear those words. It does kind of sound like Judas the scariest or Judas Iscariot. And let's be honest, uh, Judas is not our favorite guy in the Bible. We find no hero qualities in him. Many of the other disciples find favor in our ears and we name our children uh, after them. Do we have any Peters among us? Do we have any Thomases among us? Any Barts among us? Um, I've never heard anyone say, oh, we've looked at all of those names in the baby book, but we like the name Judas the best. Just love the, the ring to that name, Judas. No, not at all. In fact, I'd rather doubt that any of us have heard the name Judas outside of the pages of Scripture. Most people would be deeply insulted if you called them a Judas because that word is loaded with connotation. So there is a sadness to this story as you follow a man going deeper and deeper into himself. And then finally, as the scripture says, he went out into the night. He went out into the night. Metaphorical words, perhaps. The darkness just swallowed him up. You may indeed have some questions about Judas. I, I expect that if you do have theological questions about Judas, they won't be easy to answer. But I think they're good to ask, and I think it's okay to say, I don't know. We don't have all of our questions answered in the Bible. There are a lot of questions in this text. I've got three. Here's the first one. The question of belonging. Who belongs? Who doesn't belong? Jesus, after washing the feet of his disciples, makes this poignant statement. I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. 
Now, let me just jump ahead a couple of verses as a way of expanding what Jesus was saying. Verse 21. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Perhaps what struck me in looking at the text once again is how much the heart of our Lord was troubled by Judas. How deeply distressed he was about Judas, one of his men. You know, I think all of us carry stuff in our hearts, in our minds, and we never really share it because uh, it's too complicated. Or you don't know who you could trust with that information. So we carry it. And often we are troubled in our hearts because we feel it very deeply. Who was Jesus going to tell about Judas? Thinking of all those years in ministry together, three and a half years, they walked together, these men, for three and a half years. I'm sure Jesus told his father, but he couldn't tell the rest of the disciples. Not yet. Jesus made clear that his choice of Judas was no mistake. Gary Burge, who is a New Testament commentator, writes, The affirmation produced in verse 17, or pronounced in verse 17, is not directed to Judas, whose intentions Jesus knows perfectly. I know those whom I have chosen should not be read to say that Jesus chose the eleven and Judas has been rejected from the beginning. So Jesus knows each of these men now with him in the room. There are no surprises after three and a half years. And Jesus wants all of them. And he chose Judas And yet he knew, and this is the hard part for all of us to come to grips with, and yet he knew about Judas. If you go back to John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 70, a time when people were turning away from following Jesus because they didn't understand his message, Jesus said to the twelve at that point, Are you also going to go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the one that has eternal life. You have the words that give eternal life. And then Jesus said, I chose the twelve of you, but one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve, who would later betray him. Now that happened a long time before the events in John 13. And Jesus knew back then. His disciples didn't raise any questions, just silence from them. But there is a realization that the betrayal fits the pattern of Scripture. Jesus recognized it, and he commented on it. The Scripture that Jesus quoted was Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. And so it's a reference back to Psalm And the writer David wrote that psalm, and he was probably referring to his counselor, Ahithophel, who turned traitor and joined Absalom's rebellion. And it is rather significant that both Judas and Ahithophel committed suicide by hanging themselves 
And the reference back in the Old Testament is 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23. However, Judas did not commit suicide in order to fulfill biblical prophecy. I'm not saying it that way, which would bring a whole lot of other implications. So it's not an easy text. Isn't this the tension of the doctrine of election in the Bible? It feels like when we come to Christ and give him our lives to be his followers forever, that we are making our own willful decision, right? I am choosing to follow Christ. I remember choosing to follow Jesus as a nine-year-old. Or was he choosing me? Could you say it that way? And I was just realizing it. But it's both and. It's both and. He was choosing me, and that prompted me to choose him. And when you came to him, and you were making your decision to follow him, he was saying, I've been expecting you. And not only that, I've been expecting you from the foundation of the earth. That's the doctrine of election. I don't understand it. But you really get the sense, as you read certain passages in the Scripture, that there is a chosenness by God to his people. I don't understand how God can do that without interfering with our freedom. But you do have this sense of chosenness, this sense of belonging. And then you balance that with, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the Bible reminds us that we're chosen, that he, that he has been there with us all the time. He was there with you when you were born, and that was part of his plan. And when you grew up, no matter where your journey took you, he still loved you, and he was there, and he was walking with you, and he was caring for you. And I thought, you know, maybe we should think of God's chosenness as a precious family secret meant to provide comfort and encouragement to the believer. That God has chosen you and blessed you and called you to himself. I don't think we should stand out on the street corner and say to all who pass by, chosen, not chosen. I believe we're all chosen. But we need to affirm that chosenness. So the question about belonging. Do you see how tough the question is? People ask him, am I part of the chosen ones? Do you think I'm chosen? Charles Spurgeon, preacher from a couple hundred years ago, used to say, if you're worried about it, you probably are chosen. My aunt used to say, she was not concerned to tell others about Christ because of election. And there's something very troubling about that. Now, I know some of you think about these things, and others do not. Sometimes it's hard to allow tensions to simply exist and you don't have to solve the tension. That's hard. And as you know, right or wrong, I rarely talk about this because it's hard for some to allow the tension to exist. Balance. Not going too far on election, not going too far on free will. Perhaps simpler for me is to think in terms of what you want to do with your heart. Because that's what I can do. 
We know God is a gracious, loving God, and He does love us. And He stands at the door and He knocks. And when you hear the knock, just say, yes, yes. It takes some of the complication out of the question. Make your move. You can be sure that God is more than willing to respond and that He loves you and He is always making His move. So the first one, a little tougher, the question of belonging. The second one is the question of knowing what lies ahead. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, Jesus says, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now, this is a press release of what's coming down the road. And Jesus says, now is the time. I'm going to get the information out so that you're not taken by surprise. And when you process it all, you will know that I am the Messiah. You see, up until this time, the disciples have been quite unaware that there is a betrayer in their midst. It's not been obvious. Now, isn't that amazing that it's not been obvious? Judas has done a remarkable job in being a professional con artist. And Jesus has given him more than enough time to make a break from his evil scheming. But now the time is running out. But the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples are so timely. He knows that very soon the disciples will come to understand that something terrible is unfolding. And one of their own guys is right in the midst of it. And it's important for them to know, it's important for Jesus to disclose to them what is about to happen so that they won't come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't even know about this. Jesus had no idea what was taking place on his own team. I can't believe that we didn't know, but mostly I can't believe that Jesus didn't know. Did we really then have Jesus pegged correctly? Were we really following the Messiah for the last three years? I mean, if Jesus could make a mistake like that, not being able to judge the character of one of his own men, what other judgments did he not make correctly? So Jesus is telling them in advance, I want you to know what I'm doing. I want you to know what's coming down and that this is not catching me off guard. And that piece of information for the disciples will go such a long ways in helping them to understand that in the midst of the tragedy that they are about to go through, they can have the sure knowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus knows the future? That he knows what's about to happen? What's about to transpire in our lives? My brother and sister, he knows what's happening in your life. I have no idea what you're carrying today. But he knows the future. Whatever you're facing, he knows. And that is radically different from any of us. Because, you know, all of us are in the same boat. None of us know the future. None of us have a hotline to heaven that predicts the future. 
I would have never guessed that I would have needed open-heart surgery uh, eight years ago about this time. I mean, I'm glad I didn't know that ten years before because I would have been so consumed about looking to that time when that was about to happen. But God just handles it in His time and gives to us what we need at the hour. And God is with us when we go through surgeries and go through tough times and we mourn the loss of loved ones. You see, there are a lot of questions we could ask about the future. And the only thing that we can say is, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Will you have good health for the next 20 years? I don't know. Will you get that ideal job in the coming years? I don't know. Will I get married? I don't know. Will I be able to provide for my family back home? I don't know. But I tell you something I do know. I know Him. And I know that He knows. And He doesn't make any mistakes. And you can trust Him. And He's fully aware of what is happening. Nothing gets by Him. If he knew about Judas, don't you think he knows about every detail of your life? In fact, I'm glad I don't know about the future. Because just maybe it keeps me on the cutting edge, depending on him. And perhaps this is a key for helping all of us to be obedient in each step, each day. People often ask about the will of God. Just this week, I I talked with a a man who's considering pastoral ministry. And he's just trying to say, God, uh, is pastoral ministry for me? Shall I go that direction? And he has a heart to go that direction. He's got a sensitive heart. He's got got ears that are open. He's got eyes that are open. and, and, And if God says, you go in that direction, he says, I'm all in. I'm ready to go. I just want to know what the will of God is. And the will of God is often like a scroll. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see the whole page all at once? You'd be able to just say, here it is. These are the dates. Here's, what, here's what's happening in my life. I just have to kind of read through the agenda. And I, I know exactly where I'm at. But it's never like that. No one ever gets it that way that I've, I'm aware of. But it's like a scroll. And day by day... Decision by decision by decision, the will of God unfolds in our lives. And you look back as you see some of the scroll has unfolded. And you look back and you say, oh God, I could have never orchestrated it that way. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful mosaic that you've made in my life. And it's been day by day, it's been year by year. But I look back and I see your wonderful hand. I see how you went this way and this way and this way. and I see the pattern that that you were forming in my life. And it was wonderful. And you had your hand on me all the time. So there's the question of what lies ahead. And then there's a third question that deserves some time. That's the question of going too far. And on the screen... Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom 
he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry up and do what you're going to do. Lest you think this was easy for Jesus, you have to reread verse 21. Now Jesus was deeply troubled at the thought of betrayal by one of his guys, Judas. Deeply troubled. The word can mean agitated. The word can mean deeply distressed by what Judas is about to do. I believe Jesus was authentically pained to the depth of his heart by the loss of Judas. Because this is one of his guys. He loved Judas. And to think that one of his own could put the knife in so deeply, he was troubled. But he has to say it now. Now he has to say it. Now he has to proclaim it and put it out there. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. We use the expression, you could hear a pin drop. The disciples looked at one another, wondering who he could mean. Translations included, they looked at one another perplexed. They looked at one another with consternation. Or some translations say, they stared at one another. How could you not stare after hearing such troublesome words? One of us? You would immediately say, I hope it's not me that he's talking about. What don't I know about me? Have I missed something? Everyone is staring at one another. Thomas twitched. Bartholomew, did you see he swallowed hard? Matthew blinked. Andrew looks nervous. What don't I know about me? You actually see this much better in the account in Matthew, chapter 26, verse 22, where each of the disciples say, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I actually think that was healthy, that they questioned themselves. Maybe we should always remember that there is no sin of which we are not capable. The Bible says, whoever thinks they stand, take heed lest they fall. In other words, you never know where the enemy will attack you. And you might think, I'm solid. I'm bulletproof. Oh, no. Don't be too sure. Keep asking through life, is it I? There is no sin you're not capable of committing. And when you know that in your head... You don't have to know it in your experience. Awareness. But no, beyond our own paranoia, there was one person who knew precisely what he was doing. And Jesus was now making it public. It had to come out. 
Now, it's, it's nice to have the text give us a little break from this intensity. John probably didn't know that he would make us smile down through the centuries. But he always does when he says, verse 23, the disciple Jesus loved. Oh, by the way, that's me, John. You know me, I'm John. Uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. Anyway, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So the disciple, me, the one that Jesus loved, you know, leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Now, I'm having a little fun with John because I just love the way he describes himself. Maybe we'll find out someday that someone came along and edited John's words and added this qualifying phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. And poor John suffered abuse all these centuries uh, for his forward writing. And I somehow think that John will be able to handle it. Or maybe, maybe John will have the last laugh. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, he really felt loved. So loved by Jesus. He felt that tremendous companionship. And maybe if all of the other disciples could have written too, they'd have written the same thing because they felt it from Jesus as well. That he felt so loved by Jesus. But Jesus answered John and said, My betrayer is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now it appears that the rest of the disciples didn't hear all of this. Only John. The other disciples had now returned to their great theological discussions on who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And the incredible thing about this story is the fact that Jesus revealed to John the identity of the traitor with a familiar gesture of friendship. Jesus dipped a piece of unleavened bread into one of the bowls containing probably a paste made from bitter herbs or some have suggested maybe lamb stew. Dipped the bread into the lamb stew and gave it to Judas. And the rest of the disciples would not have caught this because culturally this was a gesture of great honor. So it appeared that he was honoring Judas. And in a sense, he was. This was Jesus' final act of grace to Judas. He had washed the man's feet. He had given him a place of honor by his side. And now he offers him this piece of bread dipped in bitter herbs or lamb stew. Friends, I am so touched by the fact that Jesus protected Judas all these years? Have you ever had somebody breathing down your neck? They were a pain in your neck. But, and you knew they weren't on your team, but you were caught in a situation where you just had to keep going and, and you had to deal with it. It's just hard, hard, hard. And think of Jesus. He did it for a couple of years or more. And he treated him with the utmost of respect. He never badmouthed Judas to the rest of the disciples. They did not know the gravity of the situation until after Judas walks out of the room 
and the events of these 24 critical hours begin to unfold. And then they saw it. (laughs) What a Savior. What a Savior. Oh, to learn from Jesus how to protect the dignity of people who hurt us. Oh, to learn from Jesus how to extend grace upon grace until you finally come to the point where you can do it no longer and chiefly because the one who is hurting you is finally playing his or her cards. It's quite a story. How did all of this happen with Judas? How did he come to a place where he just went too far? Warren Wiersbe writes, The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And I hear him saying, we have a choice with our hearts. We have a choice to allow them to be soft and tender and pliable, or we can become hard and we can allow the circumstances of life to make our hearts even harder. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. We have a choice. J- James uh, tells us that when we sin, when we're led, a- we are we sin when we are led away by our own fallen desires. James one fourteen, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. All of sin is a matter of choice. And Judas made choices all along the way. He cultivated the ground where Satan could plant the seed and enter his heart. Eventually, he goes off into the night because he just went too far. He made so many choices that finally he went over the edge. And I wish I had time to elaborate on some of those choices. But remember the story of the ointment where, Jesus, where Judas said, sad, 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 you know, we could have taken that money We could have sold that ointment and and given money to the poor. And John says in a commentary, it wasn't because he cared for the poor. No, he was the treasurer among the 12 disciples, and he often stole from the treasury. Judas knew for sure that he didn't want to be part of the kingdom that Jesus was building, where Jesus would end up at a cross. He was looking for a much more glamorous kingdom. He was looking to take care of himself. And 30 pieces of silver for betrayal seemed to fit his mission statement. Oh, but just to be able to fast forward to the end of our lives and just see where all of this ends up when we, when we move away from God. James says it ends up in death. If we make wrong choices and we allow the sun to harden the clay, then eventually we get far from God. In Matthew 27, Judas sees Jesus one final time. This is quite a picture. He sees Judas one final, or he sees Jesus one final time with his hands bound behind his back, and they're leading him off to trial. And Judas begins to get the reality of what has happened. The hands that touch so many lives. This good man, this Savior Jesus. He now sees his hands bound behind him and he knows that in part he is responsible. And deep sorrow fills his heart. 
And those 30 pieces of silver, they no longer have an appeal. He hates them. He hates them. He despises them. And he takes the money, and as you know, he throws it back into the temple, and he goes out and he hangs himself. I mentioned at the beginning that it is a sad story. It's a very tragic story. I mean, to have your, your, your best friend honor you right to the very end, and you know what you're going to do, but you don't stop. You walk into the upper room. You have Jesus wash your feet. You take the place of privilege and are seated. And, and then you, you, you are given this sop from, from stew. And, and yet in your mind you're saying, I don't care. I don't care. It's irrelevant what Jesus does for me. I have my plan. I don't care. I'm going my way regardless. So the question of going too far... Is there a place where God stops you in your tracks? Or is there a place where you just gradually fade out of the radar and your heart has become like clay and you no longer care? And one step after another after another brings you to a place of great separation from God. Judas saw Jesus that one last time and his heart became nauseous over what he had done. Could he have still turned around even at that moment? And the answer is yes. There's always time. If you're willing. If you feel nauseous, it's not too late. If you feel awful, guilty, ashamed, embarrassed, it's not too late. Jesus constantly extends his grace. He constantly reminds us that he is our friend and our Savior. Judas could could no longer even see that he had a way out. And he walked out into the darkness forever. Can I remind you, just as we close, the story doesn't need to end in sadness for any of us. That Jesus is right here in our midst this morning. He is among us. His Holy Spirit is here. And many of you, praise God, know the peace of His presence. It was so wonderful to worship this morning. It was just what I needed to lift my heart as we sang together this morning. The peace of His presence. And if you feel like you've been in the dark, kind of doing your own deal, walking away from Jesus, I want you to know this morning that there's a light. There's a light shining for you. There's a light that is shining for you. I want to invite you to bow your head with me and just close your eyes for a moment. I just want to say a few personal words. I want to just tell you this morning that Jesus invites you to the best spot in the room right beside him. And that he has a basin of water and he's kneeling before you. And he's washing your feet. He's washing your feet. He's dipping the bread in the lamb stew and he's handing it to you and he's telling you, I love you. I love you. Don't do it. Don't go in another direction because you're mine. 
And I have called you. Receive his call. Accept his chosenness in your life and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I hear you and I will not go out into the night. I will stay with you. And I will walk in your love. And if there's a battle in your heart today, but you're hearing the Spirit of God speak to you, tell him this morning that you are determined to follow him. In fact, this morning I'm going to invite you to simply raise your hand. If you're feeling the battle, you're feeling the battle and you walk with God, but you're saying in your heart, in spite of the battle, I will choose Jesus and I will choose to give my life to him. And I feel the pull of the enemy, but there is no one like Jesus. And I will follow him. And as an affirmation to Jesus this morning, if that's where you're at, would you raise your hand? Amen. 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 God bless you. God bless you. Lord God, only you know our hearts. Only you. And we want to say this morning, we choose you. We choose you with gratitude because you've chosen us. We thank you for your grace day by day by day, never giving up on us. And we surrender anew to you Lord, take us and lead us and guide us as we mature in you, becoming faithful disciples. This is our prayer, Lord. This is our prayer. We pray your hand upon your people this morning, those that have perhaps are in a struggle, and God, you'd put your hand upon them and just show them the light and the love of God in such an overwhelming way. In Jesus' name. Thank you.